For those of you who remain, I will invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 10. Or actually, it's a misprint. It will be looking through verse 20. Um, I made this slide and I made the misprint. Um, We're going to do something a little different. This is uh, one of the six warnings in the book of Hebrews, and it's uh, maybe one of the harshest, and it's definitely one of the most confused and misunderstood. Um, And it's harsh because it's dealing with eternal stakes. I remember growing up, dad teaching me how to use a knife and cut things. He's like, never, never cut towards your fingers. Like, you cut your finger off. So far, I have not, but... I was cutting over Thanksgiving, getting all the fat off the meat, and I'm thinking to myself, in the moment, this is a really awkward way to do this. I'm going to cut my finger, and immediately cut my finger. And it still hurts. Like, like the warning was harsh because the, the potential for damage is real. How much more here when we're dealing with eternal things? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read each section and talk about it for a little bit. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would... Reveal yourself to us, and that you would help us heed this warning against self-destructive self-deception, or that we would not fall prey to a false faith, but that we would know the assurance that comes from knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that you would work this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you had deceived yourself, would you know it? For a long time, I thought I was a pretty easygoing guy. I remember my roommate's fiance laughing out loud in my face when she heard that. I was quite offended by it. Uh, but as time has gone on, I've realized that I'm, I am easygoing like Emperor Palpatine is easygoing. Like when everything is happening according to as I've foreseen... When everything's going according to my plan, then I can be relaxed and at ease. Oh, but throw one big kink into the the works there, and I am just tense and high-strung, and my poor wife and children have had to help me learn this as time has gone. I just deceived myself for a long, long time. If you've deceived yourself, would you know it? I mean, character flaws are one thing, but when we are dealing with eternal things, how much more serious is it for us to to not just think that our faith is fine when it's not? See, there is such a thing as false faith. And the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to convince his readers and us to Flee such a faith, to flee such self-deception. And he shows us in this passage four ways to tell the difference between true faith and false faith. And they all revolve around one central premise. that The majesty of Christ, the glory and superiority of our Lord Jesus, devastates all false faith before him. 
We're going to look at these four things and read each passage as we go. And so the first thing I want us to see is that we should not settle for an immature faith. Look at verses 11 through verse, chapter 6, verse 3. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Don't settle for an immature faith. Now, our culture finds ways to actually encourage immaturity. Right? We, we keep pushing adolescence off further and further. And I understand brain development and all that sort of stuff doesn't end until you're in your 20s. But you can be like 36 years old and still like act like a teenager these days. And it's sort of okay. Our culture revolves around this me, mine mantra. It's the very definition of immaturity. I mean, like one of the first things you have to teach a toddler is sharing. Everything's not yours. But we encourage this in our culture, this finding my happiness, my peace, my identity. Everything should be for me. All the institutions should serve me. When politics doesn't go my way, I can throw a temper tantrum. And we do this even with things of faith, that it's all about me. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and again, we've said this before, this is probably a sermon that's been committed to writing. So imagine he's doing this in person. He begins to talk about this incredibly deep theological concept that Jesus has been designated by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it's at this moment that you're like, oh, Melchizedek, what is this? I want to know more. But he stops and he's like, but I can't talk about this because you guys are a bunch of babies. You guys have settled for a faith that is so weak and so immature. You are not ready for the meat of this theology. I still have to go back. We still have to talk about the basics of the faith. And it's not that talking about the basics of the faith is a bad thing. It's not that he's chastising them, that they they want to hear more about Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. The the problem is that, that, that they're not growing at all. They're sort of stuck in neutral, content with where they are, content with the milk of the gospel, and never growing. But true faith grows toward maturity in Christ. True faith grows towards maturity in Christ, like, like seeds. We plant them in the ground and we expect them to take root and grow. 
And when they sprout up, when they're, when they're healthy and, and doing things right, they are always straining towards the sun. And so we may be weak little foundlings, but we should still be straining and growing and reaching in faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, not to forget it, but that we might, on that firm foundation, go on to maturity. How might have you and I embraced and become content with an immature faith? Look at some of the things he points out in verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Is, is the word of God for you still a mystery? Does it offer you little comfort or encouragement in Christ? Is it inscrutable? Does it describe a God that seems so distant and far off? Or, or are you growing in your skill of just handling the word of God like I can win all the Sunday school sword drills. That I know the one to whom it points me to. I know the, the heart of the good news, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and with feet firmly planted on that, I want to, to go even further. And I want to learn more. And I want to grow in my understanding and appreciation and love and delight in the word. Or are you content to have to Google John 3.16 every time you want to remember what it says? Look in verse 14. He says, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Like, Is your growth in maturity such that as you become more and more like Jesus. It is the outflow of your heart. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working and living in you that you have the mind of Christ to discern what is good and evil, not, not through rote, academic, philosophical reasons, but because you have powers of discernment that have been trained by constant practice, constantly turning back to the Lord and seeking from him what it means for you to grow in his likeness, in his image, to grow into maturity, to know how to handle these tough decisions, these hard circumstances. Have you in this life had all of the trials that have fallen upon you, have you let them go to waste? Because you have not grown in your faith through those trials and learned from the guiding hand of the Lord what it means to distinguish his will from the things of this world. Do you have a firm foundation? He says in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, let us not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. 
and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Not that these are unimportant things. I remember growing up in a a tradition that, that valued the altar call such that I didn't know what it meant to grow in maturity. I only knew how to constantly come back to the beginning. Now, the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is, as we just read in chapter 3 and 4, as long as it's called today, you are free in Christ and his mercy and his grace to begin again. But he doesn't want you to stall out there. What would it look like for you to stand on that firm foundation of repentance and faith and grow towards maturity in Jesus? Don't settle for an immature faith. The second thing I want us to consider is found in maybe the most difficult and controversial verses, chapter 6, verse 4 through 8. This is what it says. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The warning here is this. Do not settle for a superficial faith. Our culture struggles to go deep. Many of us have not been taught well what it means to go deep into anything. There's a whole uh, phrase now, T-L-D-R. Too long, didn't read. I mean, how many times is an article posted and everybody comments on it and they didn't read past the headline? Like, we just don't have time for that. Everybody's too busy. We don't want to go deep into things. Long-form articles have fallen out of vogue. People don't read books anymore, apparently. And we just want sort of the Twitter-sized, bite-sized version of it. Let me know that. And then I will form all of my opinions based on those few characters. Superficiality is dangerous. I remember when I was younger, I was trying to help an elderly neighbor do some repairs around the house. She had a toilet that had a leak. And she had a light switch that wasn't working. So I went over to her house and I fixed the toilet and put the new seal on, took everything apart, put it back together. And as I was tightening it up, I tightened it too fast, too hard, and broke the whole, shattered the whole bottom of the toilet. Just, I did this great repair job and then, because I just didn't have that experience of how much do you need to tighten that? The answer is not as much as you think. And then I was like, oop, sorry about that, but let me fix your light switch now. And I turned off the, the light switch uh, or turned off the circuit breaker because I'm not an idiot to the room marked that. And I went to the light switch and nearly electrocuted myself because apparently whoever wrote the labels for the breaker had no idea what they were doing or what room the different circuits corresponded to. And so that light switch was live. So here I am thinking I know all of this stuff and I knew just enough to kill myself. 
superficial understanding of home repair can get you killed. How much more is superficial spirituality deadly? And so we read these verses, and they're scary. It's impossible for those who fall away to be restored again to repentance. These verses terrified me growing up. Maybe they terrify you. And honestly, in one sense, they ought to. But what is it talking about? What does it mean? They ought to terrify you in the right way. Who is impossible to restore? Why is it impossible to restore them? thought this was God we were dealing with. How is it impossible to restore them? Let's take a look. Look, who is this talking about? Look at verses 4 and 5. It's those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've touched these things. They've experienced these things. They haven't been changed by these things. Their interaction with the things of God has been superficial. This is driven home by the the fact that the author is talking in the beginning, let us leave the elementary doctrine. This we will do. And then he shifts into the third person, but it's impossible for anyone, for them, for those And he comes back later, and we'll talk about this later, but I'm confident of better things in your case. So he's talking about a a category of people that doesn't necessarily match the people that he's talking to, but it might. And it's those who are in the church, who even profess faith, who even acknowledge, oh, yes, Christianity, it's good and right and true and wonderful They've drunk the rain, as the image goes. But they haven't borne the fruit of a changed heart. Their interaction with the faith is superficial. They make profession, but they are never really a part of Christ. Because true faith is accompanied by a transformed heart. And you see this in in this verse, verse 6. This is the hard one. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's pointing to this this thing that the theologians call apostasy. That that superficial faith doesn't save, but it's possible to, to walk away from that superficial faith. We read about it in 1 John in the passage we heard earlier. I'm not saying you should pray about sin that leads to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And it's holding Christ up to contempt. It's being content to be around the things of Christ. Being content to hear about Jesus. Being content to... To dabble in Christ, but not to be changed by him. To have an actual encounter with the living, resurrected Son of God. Because Christianity is not mere ritual. It is not mere doctrine. It's not simple flood of warm emotions 
It's not merely about outward conformity. Christianity at its core is about Christ. About knowing the Lord Jesus who has risen from the dead and following after him in faith. That he forgives sins and will come again to restore all This is why the author is saying, let's not lay again this foundation of all of these things. Take hold of those things. Take hold of Christ. Don't be content with a superficial faith. Have you had an actual encounter with the majestic, glorious, eternal son of the living God? Or are you playing church? I was talking with a skeptic some time ago. Grew up in the church. Knew all the things. Probably is a better apologist than I am. Knows all the answers. And he's talking, asking questions, probing. And I'm like, look, I have one prayer for you. That you would have an actual encounter with the living God. And the skeptic who knew all the answers, I would like that. How can you be content with a faith that hasn't encountered the living God? True faith is accompanied by a transformed heart, a heart transformed by Jesus Christ himself. The third thing I want us to consider here is in verses 9 through 12. It says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The message here is that we should not settle for an uncertain faith. Our culture acts certain, even when it isn't. I mean, there are experts always on TV telling us what we should think about this or that or the other which stocks we should invest in, which people we should vote for, which protests we should join. Always somebody who's telling you what you need to know. And they are absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, confident. I have yet to hear a pundit say, well, I'm not really sure about that. We live in a culture that just thrives on this certainty, and yet we are crippled by anxiety as a culture, to the point that I read in the news, I think I've shared this once already, but I just can't get over it, that there is a pet psychic who makes like $375 an hour to tell you what your pet is thinking and feeling. And if you're going to pay for that, I've got a bridge to sell you somewhere. I won't tell you where it is. It's on the moon. Like, we're so uncertain, so crippled by anxiety, that that if somebody comes and says, pay me and I'll tell you what your pet's thinking about you, we, we jump on that. And we don't give it a second thought. Because we don't understand what certainty is. The the certainty the Bible is offering us isn't like 
knowing all the answers to all the things. You, you can't. You're not God. But there is, did you hear it? This full assurance of hope that we can have to the end. Not a kind of assurance. Not enough to sort of get us over the hump. A full assurance of hope to the end. Not wishes. Not thoughts and happy feelings. A full, unadulterated, high-octane assurance. And the scriptures understand that we don't always have that assurance. We are human beings and we are weak and frail and our attention drifts and our confidence wanders. And and so in this, he's saying in verse 11 that we desire this for you, that that earnestness that you have in Christ that is bearing fruit, that is helping you to to serve others in need, to show the love of Christ to others, this, this this fruit that you're bearing that can come only from the Holy Spirit, we, we, we rejoice that you have that, but we also want that earnestness to bear the fruit of assurance in your life that carries you to the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the good news, isn't it? That God has promised things for his people that we don't deserve. That we couldn't ask, even imagine to ask for. Promises that have eternal weight. Promises that transcend human description. And there are those who've gone before us who patiently endured every attempt the world, the flesh, and the devil could throw at them to to cause them to doubt that God would hold true to his promises. But they had a full assurance that kept them to the end. They could bear patiently under those things, not because they had arrived, but because they had a full assurance in the Lord. The readers were struggling with uncertainty. It's possible that they were on the verge of experiencing severe persecution. It's possible that even some of their loved ones had been martyred for their faith. This is what this passage is referring to. It's possible. We don't know for sure. But that uncertainty had started to, to put cracks in their uncertain faith, and they were beginning to think, well, maybe we can look to angels to give us the confidence we need to survive. Maybe we need to go back to Moses and, 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 and do the Old Testament law. Maybe we need to look to the, the, the Levitical priesthood. They were starting to look to all these other things, and their attention was drifting from Christ, and so their assurance cracked. The true faith grows towards Christ, and so it grows, grows. Towards assurance. J. 
John Calvin wrote, the true faith always goes hand in hand with hope. No matter how bad things may seem, God has promised his people. He will see them through. He wants you to have full assurance in him that he will do it. The last thing I want us to see about true faith versus false faith is in these verses 13 through 20. We'll study this passage uh, again, but I want us to get this, this point. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the point here is that the author does not want us to settle for a misplaced faith. Our culture is content to talk about faith. I thoroughly enjoyed the first season of Ted Lasso and kind of enjoyed the other seasons. And believe is a big theme in that. But believe in what? And they never really answer the question. Believe in Ted? Believe in one another? Believe in yourself? Believe in team? Just believe. We, we talk about faith as if faith in faith does something. But I can have faith that I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning transformed into a 99-cent double cheeseburger from McDonald's, and, and that faith in chance, circumstance, weirdness, isn't going to accomplish anything. What you have your faith in matters. Faith has an object. And Abraham is lifted up as an example to us. Abraham believed God. All, and, and the whole trajectory of Abraham's life and a legacy was absolutely altered because of that. Because of the object of his faith. And in fact, when you see Abraham putting his faith in himself, in his own wisdom, in his own works, it's when things start going awry. What you have faith in matters. And, and this text is telling us, if it's telling us anything, is like you can trust, you can trust the stock market until you can't. You can trust, trust the, the, the American dream until you can't. You can trust uh, your family to be good to you in all things until you can't. There is one you can trust that's greater than everything. In fact, he's so great, he can't promise according to anything else other than himself. He can't say, I swear to... He swears by himself. 
Because there's no one greater we can put our trust in. And we trust in one who has entered the inner place behind the curtain, Jesus, where he's gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Like, we entrust ourselves to Jesus, who is now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and has done everything necessary to clear the way for us to join us because he's done all of those things on our behalf. And we enter into God's presence and we get to know God and we follow after God and we grow in God, not because of anything in us that deserves it, but only and fully and completely because of him, because of the majesty and glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that true faith is anchored in Christ and in Christ alone. True faith grows in maturity in Christ. It's accompanied by a heart that's transformed by Christ. It grows in assurance as it grows towards Christ, and it's anchored in Christ. False faith does none of these things. And when we stand before the glorious, majestic Son of God, the faith that we have will be made manifest. Because false faith cannot stand before the majesty of Jesus. It sees him and realizes that it had traded the glory of the everlasting eternal son of God for a game, for ritual, for going through the motions, for morality, for rules, for whatever. But true faith, when it stands before the majestic, almighty, Son of God can't look away because we have seen then with our eyes that which we had grabbed hold to in our hearts by faith. And it's proven true. And so the author gives us this great warning to drive home this simple question. Which faith do you have? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us a true faith that is anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ. That finds its assurance and hope in Jesus Christ. That is changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. That grows and fits and starts slowly and quickly, but grows towards maturity in Christ. Give us this faith that when we see Jesus with our own eyes, we will rejoice because a hope of glory has appeared. Make this so for his glory, for his praise, and for his honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.